You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB Environmental Affairs correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel speaks with Landon Yoder, a professor at Indiana University, about how climate change will impact Indiana's agriculture sector. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, springtime seems on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. We turn now to host and producer Richard Fish for more. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines. At the Monroe County Board of Zoning Appeals meeting on May 4th, the board heard from Sands and Sands LLC for a use variance for a tourist home or cabin use on their property at Lake Lemon. Planner and GIS specialist Ann Chrysalis explained that the site has been running as a tourist home or cabin without proper permits. She said that the county has had an ongoing court case since September 24, 2021 to enforce the zoning ordinance. This is a use variance, so we are um, not necessarily looking, this is not a request from any of these specific conditions, um, but they are to be taken into consideration um, for approving the entire use or not. So a tourist home or cabin um, must meet or exceed the minimum lot size and also the infrastructure facilities um, that would be required by the zoning district. So the site is currently uh, pre-existing non-conforming under chapter 803. Approval of this use variance would trigger compliance with the minimum lot size and the side yard setback requirements. The minimum lot size for this uh, zoning district is one acre. And uh, it appears that the existing structure is encroaching into the side yard setback of five feet. Um, There is no information regarding the existing septic system. Chrysalis said that they have received both letters of support and remonstrance from community members about the use of the property and that the staff recommends the board denies the use variance. So the staff recommendation for variance 22-7 is to deny the use variance for tourist home or cabin to Chapter 802 of the Monroe County Zoning Ordinance, specifically the lack of findings provided by the applicant to meet the criteria for a use variance. And I do have the criteria for use variance on the next slide if you'd like to review that. Board member D. Owens asked the staff why there is a limit on the number of rooms that the zoning ordinance allows for. Director of Planning Jackie Nestor Jalen explained that since the site contains an existing residential structure, it would be considered mixed use to have a tourist home or cabin, and that in the rural areas, they limit the number of guests because of the septic system limitations. So the property is currently being used as a non-permitted use, but there is a a residence on the structure. It's able to be used as such, but the tourist home would be a use that they're asking for. Um, So they already have a use on the property, so they would not be able to meet one or more of of these conditions. But Um, The tourist home does have conditions that include 
a limit to the number of guest rooms. I think that was because most tourist homes are in the rural areas and so they're subject to septic capacity. And so I think there's limitations on number of bedrooms and then guests per bedroom. Petitioners Tom Sands and Robert Sands spoke on behalf with a request to have a tourist home on their property. So what we're trying to do out at at the porthole, uh, Brother Rob and I purchased it back in 2011. Um, We came in and actually I submitted some pictures. I don't know if you can throw those up there and some of the old stuff. So we came in and did a lot of cleanup. Uh, We acquired a spot for a uh, dock and a pier out at the lake as well. Uh, The whole idea was just to clean it up. I know portion of there's three lots out there. Two of them are grandfathered in under that uh, variance. We're asking for the variance on that particular parcel that you mentioned. Um, We've used this little cabin. Um, When we started out, there was a trailer there. The intent is, well, we were going to use the uh, parcel as personal use, which we have. We have a large family. Families used it. Um, And back in 2019 or 18, uh, or 13, sorry, we built the cabin um, just so we'd have a place to go. Obviously, I have a place out here since 89 as well. Uh, We came in, we cleaned it up, we've added to the lake presence out there. We're asking for the variance on this particular one as a vacation rental, um, just so we can keep the place alive. This porthole's been there since 1957, so we're 65 plus years old. Um, So it's kind of a historical landmark. I don't know if anybody's been out there, but I would tell you, take a ride is very nice. Uh, We're doing our portion. He farms, I'm in the roofing business. So we took it upon ourselves to clean it up just so it wouldn't go away. So that's what we're petitioning for. Tom Sands spoke saying that they maintain their septic tank and said they are willing to limit the number of guests from six to four if need be. A neighboring resident, Sarah Gail Tala, spoke in support of the variance. She explained that she has been in the same position as the Sands and that she believes the septic tanks they have are more more than sufficient to handle the amount of use they receive. Now, there is another guest house directly across from this cabin that we got a variant. I helped to get a variance for because they had just opened it. So there's their guest house. There's the Sands. There's the sailing club. There's neighbors that have a, a picnic area. And then I'm a couple of doors down. So we've already got two guest houses. They're between two of our guest houses. My guest house is a lot more expensive. Libby's guest houses is less. This is the least expensive one. The people that stay here are people that can't afford my guest house. I can't see any reason why this couldn't be a variance. I walk across that septic system every single day. Three times a day I walk because I walk back and forth. I have installed over seven septic systems on my properties. I've toured septic plants. I would have, at another career, I would have worked for the health department. And I assure you, in my feelings, is that septic tank is overkill. I watched it go in. It's huge. There's never a problem. I don't quite understand this thing about the septic tank in tourist homes, because if you don't give them the variance, they could rent to a family of eight there 
and they'd be using the septic a lot more. Our tourist homes use the septic sinks a lot less than when we have full-time people. I used to have a horde of graduate students in my guest house before it was a guest house and they ran up the septic tank. We all have to be really careful with our septic tanks because no one's gonna wanna stay in a tourist home if the septic tank smells. Board member Margaret, Margaret Clemens said that she would support the variants due to hearing about the community's support. The board members voted unanimously to approve the use variants. The board will have their next meeting on June 1st. Up next, we revisit a story from yesterday's news regarding a protest in March over the U.S. Supreme Court's draft leak regarding Roe v. Wade. We turn to WFHB News Director Cade Young for Community is Truly Our Last Line of Defense. Bloomington residents demonstrate support for Roe v. Wade. Bloomington protesters gathered at the Monroe County Courthouse on Monday to defend Roe v. Wade and demand legal, free, accessible, reproductive health care for all. The demonstration comes after a leak surfaced of an early Supreme Court ruling that has the potential to overturn the landmark case legalizing abortion nationwide. Ashley Colbertson, a protester and organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, says she felt compelled to protest because of the draft leak and the, quote, inaction of politicians for failing to solidify reproductive rights. I mean, obviously, the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion and also the inaction of the Democratic Party, who likes to put themselves as the party that champions women's rights in this country. But under the like current administration, we see that they have the presidency and a majority in the House and Senate, but they were not able to pass the Women's Health Protection Act due to Joe Manchin and due to just like a lack of consistency within the Democratic Party. And I think that it's pretty disgusting that we have the right wing in this country that is so hell-bent on taking away the rights of women, but that there's supposedly this other major opposition party in our country that, you know, does very, very little to stand up for our rights, except like using them as slogans whenever they are going to campaign. She said if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, it will hurt not only women, but other marginalized groups as well. I hope they know what they're doing and how much it's going to hurt women and non-binary people and trans men in this country, just anyone with a uterus, how like harmful it's really going to be, and that this position where they call themselves pro-life is absolutely not pro-life in any sense, that it is just anti-abortion, and we know that being pro-life leads to more complications during uh, abortions being practiced, and we know that this is just not the solution if they actually cared about limiting abortions, because we know that banning them does nothing to limit the actual amount of abortions that are performed. Colbertson was the opening speaker at the protest. Speaking from a megaphone, she called out the nation's highest court and policymakers for even considering to overturn abortion policy in the U.S. Neither the church nor the state has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. 
and we will stand up and we will fight back. We will take to the streets like we are today to show the Supreme Court that what they are doing is unpopular and to show the Democrats that not passing the Women's Health Protection Act is unpopular. Community is truly our last line of defense. 13 states in the United States have trigger ban laws in place to prohibit abortions if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Indiana is not one of those states. However, many speculate that Indiana's Republican supermajority would move quickly to ban abortion if the Supreme Court overturns nearly half a century of legal precedent. WFHB, I'm Cade Young. In today's feature report, WFHB environmental affairs correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel speaks with Landon Yoder, a professor at Indiana University, about how climate change will impact Indiana's agricultural sector. We turn now to that report. that we will continue to see today. Triple-digit heat, we've seen seven days so far this summer, and that triple-digit heat will continue possibly into some areas for today. All right, so yesterday, 101. That is record-breaking heat, a record set back in 1887, so a 125-year-old record broken yesterday. Eventually a high of 93. It'll be a steam bath out there with heat index values that'll range anywhere from 105 to maybe even 110 degrees at times throughout the course of the afternoon and into the early evening hours. Farmers tell me it is a dire year for apples, pears, plums, basically any tree fruit. And there are a lot of apple farmers right in our state. Some say this year they've lost everything. As any person living in Indiana has known for the last few years, our summers have been getting warmer. The recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report has found that the average worldwide temperatures will likely exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius in 20 years. The number of days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit will become increasingly common in Indiana, with a possibility of two and a half months of summer being at or higher than 90 degrees. Evidently, every year it seems that our local news stations are reporting on the latest heat wave to hit the state, often warning Hoosiers to keep cool and stay safe. One group of people who are being hurt particularly hard by the warm temperatures are the farmers of Indiana. According to the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, Indiana is ranked 10th in the nation in our total agricultural production, with quite a lot of diversity in this sector, ranging from pumpkins to turkeys and apples to popcorn. Someone who knows quite a bit about Indiana agriculture is Indiana University Assistant Professor Landon Yoder, who has spent many years researching the intersection between agricultural production and climate change, specifically how farm management practices impact water quality and crop output. His expertise has aided in the promotion of conservation practices in many farming communities to better maintain crops and livestock in response to abnormal weather-related events. Professor Yoder provides background on farming in Indiana over time and how farmers are experiencing climate change. There are responses to climate change. So corn, 
uh, soybean and wheat, winter wheat, tend to be the three biggest row crops. And then you're looking at a lot of hog farms and particularly concentrated animal feeding operations uh, along with that. So that approach to farming has been around for decades, going back to the 1970s where there was a big push. USDA secretary at the time under Nixon said, you know, we want farmers to get big or get out. So the idea was to look for economies of scale to help make farming more profitable and also to drive exports. So we have that system still in place. The way in which uh, farmers, especially row crop farmers, are experiencing climate change is you have more variability in weather. So you have longer dry spells that can cause uh, withering of crops if they're not getting enough water. And we're having roughly the same amount of rainfall over the course of the growing season as before, but we're getting a lot of that earlier in the spring. So we're getting a higher concentration of rainfall when we don't want it because we want to be able to get out into the field and to plant the crops. And then during the summer, we're getting heavier events, but fewer of those events. So where before you might have had a half inch over a week, you might get an event where you have two inches in a day. Depending on the type of tillage system you're using, you might get a lot of soil erosion because of that amount of intensity from the rainfall. These initial consequences of climate change have started to affect the yearly plans for farmers across the state. Unexpected warm temperatures and unanticipated rainfall can throw farmers off of their calendar and disrupt the growing cycles. When it comes to warmer temperatures, Professor Yoder illustrated how certain crops and livestock will be impacted. In some instances, increasing temperatures can actually lead to some increases in crop yields. So soybeans are predicted, I believe, to have slight increases in their yields because you have potentially better growing conditions for them. Corn is predicted to decrease in yields because of the high, in particular, nighttime temperatures, which means that corn has to adjust by using more of its energy to cool down at night. And so that's going to to slow down its growth. So those are a couple of big trade-offs where you have other, for livestock, for instance, you know, high heat days, so days over 85 degrees are likely to increase. That stresses livestock because that's just like us. It's just very hard to withstand really hot heat for a long time. And so that, that can reduce the potential to benefit from, from livestock agriculture. A study done by the Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment has supported Professor Yoder's findings. Observations have shown that, quote, Indiana corn yields are reduced by about 2% for every 1 degree Fahrenheit increase in overnight temperatures during July, unquote. While 2% does not seem that high, for farmers with tens of thousands of acres, that is a lot of crops potentially lost. Another key finding from the assessment was that Indiana livestock will be less likely to eat food and thus become less fertile. Overall, there seems to be a seismic shift happening for the agricultural sector due to climate change. All of these findings have raised concerns not just for the crops and livestock, but for farmers themselves as well. Professor Yoder commented on how farm workers are going to have to adjust to hot summer temperatures. Farm workers, if they're going to be outside, um, you know, especially for vegetable uh, operations, that's a risk. Heat stress is a risk that's already uh, causing problems in many places in the world. And if you have a heat wave during the summer when you've got to be outside during work, 
uh, you're probably not going to be able to get as much work done, or you're going to have to shift your hours to, to work in the evening or, or late into the night. Farmers who are uh, using big equipment are probably not going to be affected personally because, you know, the big combines are, are air-conditioned, and so you have some climate controls already there. It appears that for larger farms, the heat risk can be avoided. But otherwise, there is a threat with the warming temperatures. With this in mind, it is important to understand how farmers feel about and are responding to climate change. In his experience, communicating with farmers about the topic, Professor Yoder provided some insight as to the current sentiments in the agricultural world. Certainly, I think farmers are very aware that there is the discussion about climate change, and they see the changes in whether extremes happening, whether or not they're going to attribute that uh, to human-made climate change. And so, functionally, you know, fundamentally, they're going to have to adapt in the same way, whether or not they're, they're whatever they're calling it. My sense is that there is some change in acceptance um, in terms of thinking about calling it climate change and what that means for their operations. Politics in Indiana is another major factor that can influence the actions of farmers and generate a movement in the rural areas to properly address some of the effects of climate change. The state house has sought to help farmers before. Last year, the Indiana House passed a bill that provided funds to farmers who were impacted by grain mill closures. Similarly, another bill was passed that helped landowners receive proper compensation if a city or county invoked eminent domain and took areas of cropland. Even U.S. Senator Mike Braun took action at the national level to help farmers benefit from movements that encouraged them to not farm for a season in order to improve the carbon in the soil. This storing of carbon, called carbon sequestration, helps reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Professor Yoder explains more. You know, Senator Braun has introduced legislation to try and develop a carbon market, voluntary carbon market nationally, especially for farmers and for private forest owners um, to be able to, to, to benefit from uh, carbon sequestration efforts. And then the state legislators have, have introduced legislation to do the same thing in Indiana, although I don't believe that has passed yet. Besides these actions, there are many more steps that the government could take to encourage farmers to prepare for climate change. With his background in land use conservation, Professor Yoder described why cover crops should be supported by the agricultural sector and the state government. One of the biggest things that could be done relatively quickly would be to incentivize far more cover crop adoption. So cover crops are a typically a non-cash crop that you plant after harvest uh, and that you then terminate before you start planting your cash crop in the, cash crop in the spring. Um, and what cover crops do is, firstly, prevent soil erosion, but they also help have a root system in the soil uh, over the off-season, which can help with microbial activity in the ground. And that can also be beneficial for soil health, can improve uh, water moisture retention during droughts and water infiltration during heavy events. So there's some debate as to whether or not cover crops uh, harm or help cash crop yields. It seems that over a few years, it does help yields, or at least doesn't have a, a negative effect on cash crop yields. But you're also uh, sequestering some carbon by having a cover crop grow in the ground that you're then terminating, but leaving on top of the soil as you plant your, your cash crop over it. So that, that has a lot of potential um, and 
to have short-term benefits because it can help farms adapt, at least row crop farms adapt, to increasing uh, precipitation as well as increasing temperatures. But it also has the potential to be beneficial, especially if there is some uh, bigger movement towards voluntary carbon markets in the future as an additional source of revenue for farms. And uh, while I haven't touched on this, it will also allow an additional crop to take up uh, nutrients that are still in the soil following harvest, and that means reducing the amount of nutrients, particularly nitrate, that can wind up in our waterways. When it comes to Indiana and the resulting effects of climate change, one of the areas most likely to be impacted are the rural communities throughout the state. Through efforts such as cover crop adoption, which helps keep carbon in the soil, the effects of climate change could be reduced. Farmers are likely to be hit hard due to the warming temperatures during the summer and the changing seasonal patterns that can cause the timing of precipitation to change. This results in actions such as carbon sequestration to be needed. Despite the fears and worries of climate change, the state government and farmers themselves have begun to take meaningful steps to prepare for the future. Understanding how climate change will impact many of our fellow Hoosiers is an effective tool to help convey the reasons why sustainable and achievable adjustments should be made to become more environmentally friendly and prepare the state for climate change. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. Up next, springtime scams on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on the WFHB Local News. We turn now to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Springtime is when all sorts of things pop up like morel mushrooms and things flower all over the place. And the same is true for scams and swindles. Here are some of the latest reports. Farmers are particularly vulnerable during planting and harvesting seasons when disruption of their activities can cost them huge amounts of money. Profit margins on a farm are never very large, and there are all kinds of natural obstacles, like the weather, to having a good season. Lots of farmers depend on agricultural cooperatives to loan them seeds in the spring, provide insurance, and take care of storing and selling their crops when harvest time arrives. Recently, scammers have been focusing on these cooperatives during critical seasons. Out in Iowa, a corn and soybean co-op called New Cooperation was hit by a ransomware bug last fall right as the harvest was beginning. Suddenly, their co-op's computer systems were down, just when they needed to keep track of deliveries and financial balances. The attack came from Black Matter, which is apparently a new version of Darkside, an international dark web gang that disrupted the Colonial Pipeline the previous spring. They demanded almost six million bucks to release the co-op's encrypted files. According to FBI sources, new cooperation was able to avoid disaster by immediately taking their systems offline and using backups to create workaround methods. In other words, writing things down on paper and using typewriters and telephones. 
If you grow crops to sell, keep your records backed up. Even local farmers' markets could be at risk. According to Experian, the credit monitoring people, COVID-19 is fertile ground for scammers this spring. They set up fake testing sites to gather people's personal information, sell fake at-home tests online, and use emails, websites, text messages, and phone calls to dangle all kinds of bait like stimulus checks and student loan forgiveness, even funeral expenses for COVID victims. And here's another new one fake QR codes. Now you've seen them, those squares with a black and white pixel pattern you can scan with your phone. QR stands for quick response because these little things can contain a lot more information than old-fashioned barcodes. They got a lot more popular recently as a way to see a restaurant menu or make payments without touching anything. Well, now the bad guys have started creating their own QR codes, it's easy to do, and placing them on menus, parking meters, in emails, and on flyers. Scan one, and you may have just bought something for the bad guys, given them your personal info, or paid them for your parking spot instead of the city, which you will discover when you get a ticket. When you use a quick response code, check the address of the website it sends you to. If it's not secure or suspicious in any way, slow down your response. Double-check, delete, or figure out another way to get her done. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.